カハンニャハラミタシンギョー Thank you for joining the Zen Care Podcast. These recorded Dharma talks are given freely to our community in the heart of New York City, which we are honored to now share with you. New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care is dedicated to transforming the nature of care through contemplative practice by meeting illness, aging, and death with compassion and wisdom. Learn about us at zencare.org. Well, it's wonderful, wonderful to be with you all today. <laughs> Such a treat. Um, anyway, the, the topic of my talk is choiceless choice. And the reason、uh, for choosing this choiceless choice is the fact that our culture is so,、um, uh, believes so much in.、Um, Free will,、uh, that we have free will. And、um, in exploring this, I've been looking into this for years because I didn't understand how I could explain many of the things that have occurred in my life from free will. I mean, more and more, <laughs> I get more and more distant from the idea that I've made anything happen.、Uh, <clears throat> when we Our days are filled with、uh, schedules. We get up at a certain time, we eat at a certain time, we leave the house at a certain time. So there's a certain order, seeming order to our days. When I think about the choices, so called, that I've made in my life, I really am not sure who that was that made those choices, if there was anybody. <laughs> Um, I had, I knew somebody once who said that before she was born, she had two choices as to the direction of her life. Well, I've never met anybody like that before, but on the other hand, it was her real experience. In terms of decisive choices, you know, there are some people who experience a remarkable beginning. For example, somebody sent me. A,、um, an internet uh, 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 video of a three year old little boy who was on a platform conducting Beethoven as if he was Tuscanini. I mean, the idea that at three years old his life had sort of been set in stone <laughs> just seemed so remarkable to me since that happens to very relatively few people. In other words, so many people get out of college and really don't have a direction that's clear to them. Right after our Roshi died, this is many years ago now, I was going through some of the information and material that I received from him. And、uh, I saw. A piece from a journal that, that Bernie Glassman, his second wife after she died, and、uh, 
I I sent out very sad responses to him because she was an extraordinary woman. I didn't see her very much, but I liked her enormously, felt very uh, connected to her. And um, after Bernie sent me a note that came from her journal, and she said, if you just surrendered your life to the Dharma, then you no longer have to worry about what the future will bring. You will bring forth the future out of your own surrender. Just drink tea and the Dharma will come to you. You don't have to chase it. It is chasing you. And that makes me think about breathing. You know, we say, I am breathing. Well, the fact of the matter is the breath comes and goes on its own. We don't have to take control of that. And a wonderful story that my mother told me about a grandchild who used to have temper tantrums and would hold his breath because he would so be so furious until he turned blue. And then guess what? The breath came in and out, whether he liked it or not. <laughs> Dokshin says, how amazing, how amazing. Birds and trees expound the Dharma. It cannot be heard with the ear, but when a sound is heard with the eye, it's understood. The Dharma, the subject of this talk, is interesting because it lies in the middle of the three treasures, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. So it is kind of like the way things are, the way things evolve. And the Buddha says that the Sangha is perhaps the most important of the three treasures. Because without it, I don't think we could continue to do this very demanding process. That's why I love the, fir the first chant, the first line of a chant we chant, the Dharma incomparably profound and infinitely subtle is rarely encountered even in millions of ages. Now we see it, hear it, receive and maintain it may we truly understand the Buddhist teachings. What an opportunity we have in this world that is so at war and so angry and frustrated and suffering. Good heavens, you know, even on bad, bad, bad days, I just express my gratitude to the universe that this, this good fortune has been given to me as difficult as it's been. There doesn't seem to be any ending of the process of coming and going of the light and the dark. Um, I think that that's just part of the journey on earth that uh, it's why it's so important for me to recognize there's no arriving. Even when you go through these glorious free periods, you say to yourself, oh, well, I choose to be here and therefore I'll be here. Ho, ho, ho. You know, again, it's like dark and light are inevitably part of everything, you know, day and night, light and dark, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, we live in a duality. And, and so there's an inevitability of the connectedness in the so-called opposites.
Some time ago, my husband and I were given an interesting gift by a friend, a fellow traveler, and it's an investigation of our real origins from a perhaps 10,000 years ago called Genographic Project. And the primary question is, who am I? It then says we are all more than the sum of our parts, but the results offer some of the most fascinating information in our Geno2 test. We display your affiliations with a set of nine world regions. This information is determined from your entire genome. So we are able to see both parents' information going back six generations. Your percentages reflect both recent influences and ancient genetic patterns in your DNA due to migrations as groups from different regions mixed over thousands of years. Your ancestors also mixed with ancient, now extinct hominid cousins like Neanderthals in Europe and the Middle East or the Denisovans in Asia. If you have a very mixed background, the pattern can get complicated quickly. They go into detail about each area of origin, Northeast Asian, Mediterranean, Northern European, Sub-Saharan Africa, etc. The hominid component was really interesting in the face of our tendencies in this country toward arrogance. And indeed, self-righteousness and arrogance are certainly something that we all have to deal with in this culture. The gene results were Northern European 54%, Southeast Asian 21%, Sub-Saharan African 2%, et cetera, et cetera. It's a bit like contemplating the vastness of the galaxies and knowing that this is all part of who we are. <laughs> Where is the choice in this complexity of elements? Neuroscientists are now saying that even our preferences to early hours of the day or late hours of the day are, um, are embedded in our DNA. So interesting, it, what we have to deal with. <laughs> it's sort of intrinsic. <clears throat> this is a quote from James Barris, one of the founders of Spirit Rock uh, in California. When we are not attached to who we think we are, life can move through us, playing us like an instrument. Understanding now everything is in continual transformation. We release our futile efforts to control circumstances. When we live in this easy connection with life, we live in joy, right? <laughs> You've all experienced moments or you couldn't possibly be doing this. I learn over and over again that when I resist the moment, I have immeasurable suffering to be willing to be with our fear, the fear of what we don't like about ourselves that we're constantly projecting onto others, to be with that fear with a loving attitude toward our inner child who for all of us was traumatized on one level or another. It seems to me that this is the basis 
you know, we're, it's, it's like learning to parent ourselves, to be the parent that we did not have. No gain, no blame. I mean, everybody's doing the best they can, including our parents and so forth. <laughs> Those old themes that we all carry, if we can bring love and compassion to those moments when we're hating each other or somebody else to recognize that we're really all the same, fundamentally. And despite our obvious individual uniqueness, that we're basically all the same and all equal, to accept that is so deeply challenging and transforming to really understand nobody can help being where they are, not even the Dalai Lama. As, as um, Ram Das was asked once if there would ever be peace on earth, and he said, no, the earth plane is where we learn deeply about suffering and joy. And when you think over all of our, our lives, that seems so obvious, and yet we're constantly self-criticizing about the state of affairs of ourselves and others. <laughs> There's a wonderful poem from Rumi called The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows. Why, who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture? Still, I wish it would come to my house. Treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. I look back on my life and I cannot really tell who made the choices that have happened to me in this life. It's, uh, it's why I love a quote from T.S. Eliot in the Four Quartets who says, in the end, I will be return to the beginning and know the place for the first time. How many times does that happen to us as we go through the patterns of our lives and recognize more deeply the repetitive patterns, become deeply intimate with them in a way where we can forgive ourselves and everybody for being exactly where we have to be. I see our so-called superior human species as no different from all elements of nature. Birth and death are no different for us than from any other element. Time comes and goes, seasons come and go, and so do we. I think we all have major themes that we work on through a lifetime, and it's interesting to check what yours might be. For me, it's been abandonment 
And whether it's shame or you know, fear of death or whatever it is, it's a theme that goes through us. And I think that when we can recognize it, it again expands our understanding of where we are at any moment. This interesting story about a spider plant <laughs> and timing. <clears throat> uh, I think in one of the last retreats that I did at IMS, they were overrun with, with plants, hanging plants of all kinds. And I just took a, a spider plant home with me and it hung in my meditation room and never produced spiders, children, infants. For five years, it hung there. And now it's just making dozens and dozens of children. So again, you know, the timing of everything is so mysterious. And we can have an intention that take years to un un unfurl, as I know very well. Um, Walt Whitman says, faith is the aftermath of questioning, not the answers, but the quitting of doubt. I think um, doubt is perhaps the most difficult of the hindrances for all of us, because when doubt is not present, no matter how difficult the situation is, we shrug our shoulders and say, okay, you know, I really have to be with this. But doubt makes you question the whole, the relevance of this intense process. So to be aware when doubt is present and to um, really examine where you've come from and to see how far changes have taken place, even in small ways in the quality of your life. And so I'm going to end this talk with a song that I sing when doubt arises. Come abiding, trust the Dharma. Come abiding, trust the Dharma. At the still point of the turning world, I am love, I am peace, I am free. Thank you.